Let's uh, continue our praise together by uh, turning to, to Psalm 22, please. This will be our last Sunday in this uh, summer in the Psalms series, and we'll return back to uh, John 17 next week. Psalm 22. It's a rather long psalm, 31 verses. We'll cover them all through the course of the exposition. I'll begin reading with just the the opening lines in verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I'd be interested to know, and the group that's here today, what number of you or more good news first kind of people, and which of you are are bad news first? You know the predicament. I've got good news and bad news. If you're a good news first kind of person, raise your hand. All right. Bad news first. The overwhelming majority. (laughs) At least some of you will be happy with this. We've got to go with the bad news first. When you're reading this psalm, the first two-thirds is nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing but terrible news. And I appreciate it, frankly. Because bad news is out there. Contrary to what some churches would try to tell you, that every day is a fantastic day, I'm just telling you straight up, there's some terrible times. In our world, in our own souls. I was reading a book this week and came across these lines. I thought they capture the situation well. It says, Misery and darkness and anguish and regret and shame and lament color all that we say do, and think. The reality of nightmares shows us that this pain and futility even reaches into our subconscious and sleep. We can go nowhere to escape the futility and pain of life in this fallen world. And listen to these lines they're telling. Pain is not the islands of our life, but the ocean. Disappointment and letdown is the stage on which all of life unfolds, not an occasional blip on an otherwise comfortable and smooth life. That's the bad news. I mean, at times, he was talking about pain not just being a blip. I mean, this is the only thing you see on the radar. 
At times, the the disappointment and frustration isn't just a lot of water, but it's, it's the only thing you see. I remember I went offshore fishing several years ago. That's a creepy feeling. Some of us know what it's like to be in the ocean of pain but can see the shoreline somewhere, but every once in a while, you don't see anything. Sometimes it's so bad that it can even seem that God is not there. And I think those, that's typically when, when the pain is perpetual. When the sorrow is ceaseless. When the depression is enduring. We can go through a daily trial. We can go through something for a week. We can go through something for a month. But like once we start getting into months upon months and years upon years of the same sorrow, that's when we begin to think, is, is God even there? To quote the old Negro spiritual, sometimes we feel like a motherless child. And none of us, friends, I, I just I hate to tell you this again, bad news first. None of us are immune from this. You may generally see yourself as a pretty upbeat person, glass half full. But hang around long enough, follow Jesus long enough, and you will experience this feeling. I think the problem is that some of us, though, don't know this kind of pain because we evade it. Many of us have found a way around this, we, and we get around it two ways. Numbness and busyness. I heard a TED Talk this week in which one speaker noted well about Americans. Tell me if this is not true of you. We numb pain and vulnerability. We are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Fact. She goes on to warn You cannot selectively numb emotion. You cannot numb the hard feelings without numbing the others, joy and gratitude and happiness. I mean, some of us are walking around like zombies. Whether it be from social media or substances or just anything just to get us not to think about how hard life actually is. But the fact that you need to numb yourself shows that there's a pain so excruciating that you're looking for some kind of relief. The other way that we try to cope with it is busyness. I think this is a Naples thing. People have business. Isn't it interesting that they resemble one another? And so instead of actually dealing with what feels like the absence of God's favor in their lives, they're just like, let's just push harder. I need to stay busy. I need to keep going. I need to get enough product off the ground. We need to hit the next milestone. Let's look at the next quarter. And we can't, we won't even think. We won't even think about what's going on in our own hearts. But whether we've downed a bottle of metaphorical NyQuil or whether we've 
pretended that nothing's going on and done the whole mind over matter thing that we try to do by staying busy. We can't escape it. There are times when it actually seems that God is not with us. And we just need to be really real about that. So for those of you who are pretending it's not happening, ask yourself, why are you pursuing those other things? For those of us who do occasionally feel this way, here's the good news. You are not alone. You are not alone. If you ever feel that way. Some of the most holy saints in all of Scripture have been there and done that. And done it well. That's what this psalm is. It's the song of the forsaken. This is a song written by somebody who actually thinks that God has abandoned him. I know when we read those opening lines, some of us who are biblically informed are automatically thinking like, oh, I know where this is going. I know what this is automatically about. This is what Jesus said when he was on the cross. Let's talk about Jesus. I promise we'll talk about Jesus. But you can't miss what's here. This is not an explicitly prophetic psalm. There's no, he shall do this or that. This is a psalmist who is, as you will see, being tortured alive. At least emotionally. And yet somehow finds some great hope in the end. It's two-thirds tragedy, one-third triumph, every bit applicable for those of us in this room who have hurting hearts that are sometimes tempted to think, where is God in this mess? But that being said, before we jump in, I say one more thing. Though this psalm speaks to those who sorrow, it does indeed point to the Savior as well. Because you'll notice this, and I'll bring it out later. But as you you read through this, you're like, something's off, something's missing. Could anybody ever really experience something this bad? And then you're going to be wondering, could anybody ever really experience anything this good? So here's how I'm going to handle this dilemma. I'm going to preach the passage in its historical, poetical context. We're going to deal with the poem and let it minister to your heart as it did for saints for hundreds of years. But then I'll conclude by showing the ultimate point. And how it shows us our Lord. So this is a psalm of abandonment. I would call it, if you're taking notes, apparent abandonment. Apparent. It seems like God is gone. And what this psalm will teach us, in both its tragedy and its triumph, is that apparent abandonment turns us to God. It actually compels in us. It creates something in us. It creates, and you won't believe this, but I promise it's there. When, you, when it seems like God has abandoned you, it is actually creating a deeper faith in you. Apparent abandonment leads to an increase of faith. It turns you, it forces your attention in two directions. One, 
to God in in prayer, when you feel abandoned by God and you were actually one of His children, you'll see in the first two-thirds of this psalm that that is God turning your head up to Him in prayer. And then the second way that this abandonment perceived or apparent turns us is out to others with praise. To God in prayer, to others with praise. Let me hit this poem and let's cover it. I want you to see what the psalmist is so concerned about. He thinks that God has left him alone in his time of greatest need and trouble. Verses 1 and 2. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Like you're not there. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Like, that's the main complaint. He feels that God's not there. And clearly, there's some kind of trouble that's going on in his life that's causing him to cry out to God, but he's not getting any response, and so he thinks that God has abandoned him. And I need you to to resonate with that for a moment, because like, we all know what it's like to cry out to one over and above us for relief. And how natural, I mean, like, how natural would it be for you to think that that person has left you or abandoned you if they're obligated to you and they don't come to your aid? Can I just give you a little life illustration of this? I'm studying. Last night. And I hear a child cry in, like, terrible pain. It was terrible. And I found out that ultimately they were cooking, baking cookies, and somehow the hot pan connected with his arm. And it, I mean, it hurts, especially on that soft underside of the arm. What's the natural response of a parent in that moment? Is to get up and go run to the child. He's crying out in pain. You want to you help. You want to relieve. You put the cold water on. You're trying to... Now, what if the pain persists and the parent never comes? I mean, imagine that, that I never came. Let's say that I left him for two minutes, five minutes, days, months, years. At some point, you're going to think, he's just not there. The parent's not there anymore because he's not, <laughs> he's not coming to my aid. That's what David's thinking. Like He knows that he's got this special relationship with God, and God said that he would answer him and that he would be faithful and that he would meet his needs. And he's got a need, and it's not getting met. And so he's just tempted to think, well, God, he's gone. He's gone. Notice this in the, as the poem progresses There's this dismay in verses 1 through 2 that God has abandoned him, but then he expresses what I'll call some dissonance. You know what dissonance is, like where something doesn't line up? Like David's experience and whatever's going on in his life here is not lining up with what he knows to be true about God. Listen to how he'll say some theologically correct things, but then say, this isn't lining up with what I'm going through right now. He says... In verse 3, yet you are holy. You've forsaken me, but you're, you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. Notice he's going to talk about how this God of his, who's supposed to be his helper, has always come to the aid of Israel, his people. 
He says, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. A worm. Weak. Pitiful. Disgusting. Everybody else, God, all the rest of Israel calls upon you and you intervene and you act. But me, I'm writhing in pain. Scorned by mankind, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He's being emotionally tortured. He's being made fun of. Whatever he's going through, other people are adding insult to injury. Literally. Notice what they do. It says, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And this is what they say when they're making fun of him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Notice that. And again, the dissonance. David says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. What he's saying is, like, even in my childhood, you were always there. Like, from the earliest time that I can recall, you've always been faithful to me. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And yet, even in light of that, he's having to pray right now. Listen to what he prays. Even though he historically had this close relationship with God, he has to pray in verse 11, Be not far from me. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. It's dissonance. He knows something to be true of God historically and experientially, but it's not lining up in this moment. And then, just notice this, he just starts demanding for God to intervene and help him, and this is painful. I know, friends, that this is poetry, and that um, and poetry has a, a way of, of using hyperbole, you know, use exaggeration, but sometimes, like some figures of speech are just a little too strong for an experience. I just want you to try to get the picture here, I'm going to give you an overview of it. Basically, he's saying that whatever it is he's going through, it's like him being trampled and destroyed by wild animals, ferocious large animals, and on top of that, being tortured and insulted by human beings who know what they're doing. I mean, like, this is the kind of stuff that would turn a movie from PG to rated R. Scenes of graphic torture. There's not a psalm like this, by the way. Sometimes he's like, man, I'm having a really bad day, or it seems like it's a stormy time in life. I mean, those metaphors we get. But to the metaphor of being tortured alive, I just don't hear that song on the radio. And yet, that's what he sings. Many bulls encompass me, verse 12. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The bulls of Bashan were known to be stronger, fatter bigger. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. 
I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Um, you're getting the picture here? Not only does it feel like animals are tearing him to pieces, but he's saying that internally he is spent. He has nothing left. I am poured out like water. You ever been there? All my bones are out of joint. Like, there isn't a place on his body where he feels any relief. He is messed up. His heart, his, his life force is like wax. It's melted. It, it's not even there anymore. His strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is just a broken piece of pottery. It doesn't get any drier than that. It used to be wet and supple, but it dried out to the degree that it started crumbling. He's saying, that's what like, my strength is like. There's nothing there. My tongue sticks to my jaws that cotton mouth kind of a feeling. And here's the worst one, verse 15 at the very end. You lay me in the dust of death. It is as if you, O God, are burying me alive. The animal imagery continues. Dogs encompass me. Can I pause? Just a cultural thing. Some of you are dog people. Some of us aren't. But in American culture, all of us get that dogs are, you know, can be a pet. You go to other places in the world and they're like, you have a dog for a pet? It'd be like you having a pet rat. Dogs were considered to be roaming, wild, ravenous beasts. So I know some of you are like, oh, wow, dogs are encompassing him. This must be a great time in his life. It's not. He's being torn to pieces by a pack of wild dogs. Think of it that way. But now he says who these dogs are. He says, it's a company of evildoers. They encircle me. They, and, and listen to this. I mean, like, where do, what dark place is David in to be able to say something like this? They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, again, some of you are thinking, oh, this is referring to crucifixion. Crucifixion didn't exist for 600 more years. This is written around 1000 BC. The Persians didn't come up with that cruel torture device to about 400 BC. So, whatever David has in mind here is he's being impaled. And it says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Not only are they stabbing him to death, but they have starved him to such a degree that he can see his emaciated body. He can see his bones. And not only that, again, they stare and they gloat over me. They, they're keeping me alive long enough just to make fun of me. And as this is the ultimate in disgrace, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. I don't care who you are, where you are in the world, the last thing that a person ever owns are the clothes on his own body. That's the last shred of dignity anybody has left. And even then, before he dies, they take his clothes from him and play a game to see who gets them. 
And so he, he demands deliverance. Notice this. He says, but you, O Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. There's Paul's there. I, I want, what I want you to see is that I don't know what's going on with David. Some scholars are trying to say, oh, maybe he was really sick. But it sounds to me that he's not just concerned about sickness because he's got people who are insulting him. Some people have said, well, it's just a really rough time in life. Friends, I don't, I've never had a bad day like this. I've had plenty of bad days. Something crazy is happening. But you know what the real problem is for David? It isn't the physical pain. It isn't the emotional pain. It's the spiritual abandonment. That's what he keeps repeating. Why did you leave me? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you far off? Why don't you come near? And then something strange and crazy happens in verse 21. He's, he's praying, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then the Hebrew gets funny. I don't do this often, but pardon me for a moment. It says, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. If you actually have that little number two there, you're using the ESV. It says, um, you answered me from the horns of the wild oxen. Um, I just need to kind of walk you through this. Here's what's really going on. This is what it says literally in the Hebrew. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. That's the word order in the original language. And then the last thing that's appended onto that is, you have answered me, exclamation point. How do you answer somebody from the horns of wild oxen? That doesn't even make sense. Again, I'm not alone here. It's not like I'm some brilliant Hebrew scholar that can say, well, the ESV, they should have done such and such. Thankfully, other versions like the New English Translation and the Christian Standard Bible also recognize this translation difference. What I want you to note is David is in full despair over this being torn to pieces, and then all of a sudden, like you talk about whiplash, all of a sudden something has happened that we don't know about, but he says, you answered me. Because notice how the poem changes from this point. We move from tragedy to triumph. If we take it literally, this is what it says. From save me from the mouth of the lion, implicit, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Do you notice how the tone changes? You're like, all right, either this guy's got mental problems or something has happened so that now where he felt abandoned by, abandoned by God, now he feels accompanied by God, and, and like there's been a change. And what is that? I don't know. The psalm doesn't say. Like we always know what's going on in a songwriter's mind. Sometimes I'll listen to lyrics, and I'll like look them up online, and I'm like, what did they mean by such and such? And, you know, there's nothing out there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Here's, here's three possibilities of what happened between the beginning of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. Option one 
is he received an oracle of salvation from a prophet. A prophet came to David and said, I know this is a terrible time, but there will be deliverance. And that's changed his mind. Option number two, it could be providential circumstances had changed. Like already, whatever he thought was happening has begun to turn, and he figures that out, and that has changed, and so he wants to praise God for it. Or option number three, I don't even remember option number three, sorry. The point is, though, that it's different. Oh, I remember option three. Just maybe in his spirit, God just gave him assurance. You know how sometimes you just seem to be lacking that? And then like, just like out of nowhere, like a cloud rolling in on a sunny, hot day, like you just all of a sudden feel at peace. So it could have been providence, it could have been internal working, it could have been a prophecy, but something changed, and we move now to this second outcome of apparent abandonment by God. The first one is, it leads us to the Lord in in prayer. Like, it turns us to Him, but it also turns us out to others with praise. But before we talk about that praise, I, I need to settle in on this, because some of you, even in this season, may be experiencing this, and I want you to see Something very unique about those who feel abandoned by God and actually belong to Him, here it is, they turn to Him. You may feel abandoned by God, but evidence that you may not actually be abandoned by God is the fact that your soul still cries out to Him for relief. Did you notice how David, even when he's feeling this, is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not God of other people, but you are mine. Five different times through this, he's going to use the possessive pronoun, my. I'm in relationship with you. That is why I'm continuing to cry out to you. In pain and in apparent forsakenness, God is drawing us up to him. It is the way that he gets our attention. You know these lines well from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore pleasure. We can ignore pleasure. If God's trying to get our attention through pleasure, we can ignore that. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer, knew this to be true. In one of his least sung poems, he tells a story about asking God to do this great work in him. He wanted God to, to work in his life in a, in a great way, and but, but this is what he says about this prayer. He says, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. He acknowledges at the beginning of the poem that God is going to answer his prayer, but the way that he answered his prayer almost caused him to despair. The poem goes on to tell that he hoped God would just like magically zap him with holiness and peace. 
um, Newton did not use the words magically zap. I am taking a seven stanza poem and summarizing it. But instead of that happening, this is what he says. Instead of this, and by the way, don't we all want it to happen that way? Lord, just zap me, please. This This is Newton. He says, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more. With his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. You ever been there? Newton continues, and he even refers to verse 6 of this psalm. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. It turns your head up to Him in prayer. You can try the numbness route for a little while. You can try the busyness route for a little while. But God will get your attention. And it's a grace. It's grace. To look to Him is such grace. You're you're connected to Him once more. And even though you're doing it by faith to begin, He eventually will deliver and the feeling will return. Sometimes we do feel, friends, you're not alone. We do feel as if God is not listening. Sometimes it feels like our prayers aren't making it past the ceiling. Anybody? But for those who are in Christ, it, it leads us to lean in to Him more. That old uh, Negro spiritual I referenced earlier, it's had several renditions, but the original is sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Then I get down on my knees and pray. The newer versions of the song take out the line on prayer. The feeling like a motherless child for those who belong to God as their child will eventually force them to pray. To pray like they never have before. It actually compels faith, this apparent abandonment. But as we see in in verses 21 to 31, it also turns us to others with praise. What happens is, it was so terrible, and then it becomes so great, that you can't help 
but like tell other people about it. Now again, when you're in it, you're not telling anybody. But like when it's finally over, you're like, he came through, he did it. That's exactly what happens here. What we notice is that as he moves to this triumph portion of the poem, he does this personal praise, but then it's going to turn, and like follow my hand movements here, it turns personal praise, and then it turns into corporate praise, and then it's going to go from corporate praise to universal praise. Now, this is crazy. Like, whatever this was, whatever this circumstance was that, that he was finally delivered from, was so like, climactic and amazing. Like, it, it was, the deliverance was so stunning that it's not just like, oh, well, thank God for this, and he keeps it to himself. He can't help but tell other people, and listen to that. Those people can't help but tell other people, and this is how crazy this poem is. It even leads to the entire world hearing about this particular deliverance. Follow it. See if, see if you see it. He says, He answered me at the end of verse 21, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All right, there's the personal. Now note the corporate. Verses 23 and 24. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Notice that. It isn't enough for him to celebrate it. He's like, I want everybody in Israel, all of God's people, I want them praising God for this particular deliverance as well. And now it turns universal in the last few verses. This should blow your mind. It reverberates through the world. Look at verse 25. He says, from you my praise comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. Now, I need to pause here. Are you ready for some Bible background stuff? Some of you love Bible background things. I hope this makes you happy. It is natural for us to wonder, well, what does He mean I will perform my vows before those who fear Him? Well, we know uh, from reading Leviticus 7 that when uh, God would do something amazing in somebody's life, they were to offer a peace offering at the tabernacle. And here's the cool thing about a peace offering. When you cook that animal on the altar, it was the only offering that you could share the food with other people in the tabernacle as well. In fact, the way that it worked, it's kind of like my 16th birthday. We had a pig picking. They would not have been sacrificing a pig, I assure you. But they'd cook that pig, and you're like you just stand by there, and people come by, and they eat of it, and it's just a big party and a celebration. I mean, a peace offering was like a party. You sacrifice the animal, and you're actually required to stand there and tell people what the, what the sacrifice is for. You tell them the great thing that God did. And so what, what David is doing here, he's saying, like, I'm going I'm to perform my vow. I'm going to offer the peace offering, and everybody's going to feed on this, and they're going to enjoy the greatness of what God did for me. And the way that this metaphor is going to work is he's going to talk about this being like this meal being so big, so sumptuous, that the whole earth wants to come and get in on this celebration of what happened to him. So don't miss the offering metaphor. You're going to see it play out. You ready? He says, I'm going to offer my vow. I'm going to perform before those who fear him. But notice how it goes beyond that. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then he just cries out, may your hearts live forever. It's like he's, he's giving a toast at the party. He just wants all the people that are partaking to feel life in and of themselves. And, but here's the deal. He was talking about those who fear the Lord, but now notice what happens in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember this and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You're like, what? This, this sacrifice of praise, this party that he's given in light of this deliverance, is not only going to go to the people of Israel, but there's going to be so many people celebrating this that it's going to make its way around the entire world? Just in case you thought that was an accident. He continues to drive the point home. Here's the last few verses, and here's the last technical thing I'll mention. We've talked a lot about Hebrew poetry over recent weeks. One of the things that the Hebrews especially love in poetry is merism. Merism is when you use two extremes to include the totality, when you're like, man, I searched high and low for that thing. I couldn't find it. High, low, everything. We researched from A to Z. A, Z, everything in between. Note the merisms here. High, low, young, old, everybody. He says, verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jew and Gentile, they're going to be included in this praise. Rich and poor are going to be included in this praise. And listen to this, those who are living and those who are dying, those who go down to the grave of death, they will participate in this praise. And then it's not over. You ready? One more. The current generation and the one to come. It says the people alive now are going to celebrate, but this thing's going to be so climactic that it's going to get passed on for years and years and years to come. And so, what did the apparent abandonment do? It not only turned him to God in prayer, but it turned him to others in praise. He could not help but share this good news. And other people, once they heard it, they couldn't help but share the good news till it made it all the way around the world for generations to come. I just would point out to you, friends, that this is how our God works. That the whole, the whole poem works in ways that you would intend it to. It's like, I, w I thought about using an object lesson today, but it would be so distracting if something terrible happened. I was going to get a bouncy ball <laughs> and try to actually show you that the harder you throw down the ball, the higher it goes up. Now, could you imagine if I did that and I like, knocked out a light or something or hit somebody in the face? So let's just imagine. The poem... David is taking like what he's going through in his life and he is like he is throwing it down. It is like God has crushed him to the ground. But the way that he bounces up 
is like unparalleled. The higher the mountain, the lower the valley. The deeper the despair, the higher the delight. (laughs) For those of you who are like rather even-keeled people, you don't get very sad, but you also don't get very happy. And for those of you who know how to throw a temper tantrum like none other, you probably know how to throw a party like none other. What he's saying here is that the deeper God allows you to go in despair, the higher he will allow you to arise in delight. God works through affliction, through the most difficult things. Somebody gifted me a few years ago this um, wonderful, thick book by John Piper called The Swans Are Not Silent, and it's this, uh, it's biographies, it's just collections of biographies. And in the second section of the book, it covers guys like John Bunyan, William Cooper, and David Brainerd. And Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is Literally the most read book outside the Bible. Nothing has had that kind of influence ever. Spent 12 years in prison. And God used those 12 years. All he had to do, by the way, it was voluntary. He could have left prison at any time if he would just agree to stop preaching the gospel, but he didn't. And he would tell stories about his young daughter coming to visit him, and he said it was like his flesh being pulled off his bones every time she would leave. He could have been with her at any time, and he didn't do it. And through that, God would develop within him this capacity to write one of the most profound Christian books in all of Christian literature. Or William Cooper, you don't know him as well, but he was actually considered to be the poet of one of the first great awakenings. I mean, this is the guy who would ultimately give us the poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, or There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And yet, Cooper, his whole life struggled with depression, multiple times trying to commit suicide. And yet, through that depth of despair, God would do something great in and through him. In fact, How many Christians have been served by his words in their own darkness because of what he went through? And then the last one is David Brainerd. And we wouldn't know of Brainerd if it wasn't for Jonathan Edwards who who grabbed this guy's diary before he died and published it. Missiologists agree today that more people have gone to the missions field from reading David Brainerd's diary, his account of ministering to the Indians in New England and the suffering that he endured because of that particular work. It just propelled people. But Brainerd, like he was already coughing blood at 22 years old at Yale University. Ultimately, he would get expelled. Not knowing that his body could handle the rigors of the wilderness, he stayed out, exposed to the elements for seven years, and died at age 29. And yet, the modern missionary movement is in part born on his back. God works in affliction. He throws people down hard, and yet they bounce up high for His honor and glory. It's, it's kind of like just part of the deal, and this is Piper's commentary on this. I just want to read this, and we're about to conclude. He says, there's a certain irony to the fruit of these afflictions. Bunyan's confinement taught him the pilgrim path of Christian freedom. Cooper's mental illness yielded the sweet music of the mind for troubled souls. Brainerd's smoldering misery of isolation and disease exploded in global missions beyond all imagination. Irony and disproportion are God's way. 
He keeps us off balance with his unpredictable connections. We think we know how to do something big and God makes it small. We think we have, that all we have is weak and small and God makes it big. Baron Sarah gives birth to a child of promise. Gideon's 300 men defeat 1,000 Midianites. A slingshot in the hand of a shepherd boy brings the giant down. A virgin bears the Son of God. A boy's five loaves feed thousands. A breach of justice, groveling political expediency, and criminal torture on a gruesome cross become the foundation of the salvation for the world. This is how our God works. And this is how He has worked, and this is where... I end. Friends, the saints through the years would sing this sad song, but here's the deal. They would get that it didn't really fit. Something about this song seemed so extreme that it's like, this can't be true of David. There's two ways. It's like a jacket. You know, you try on a jacket and sometimes it doesn't fit. It's, It's too tight. It's too short. If they were to try this song on, I mean, they'd wear it, but it was, it was awful short in the sleeves, and it was awful constricting because, one, David never experienced any pain like this that we know of. We know that one time people tried to stone him, but he was never tortured alive. He was never impaled. He never had his bones displaced. There was something about this that just seemed to fall short of David's experience. And also, there was something that fell short in the triumph. While people may have celebrated David being delivered from a hard time, it didn't make it all the way around the world for generations to come. I realize that if an amazing thing happens in your life and a few people hear about it, I'm like, that's pretty cool. But I don't know that anyone in the Old Testament ever had anything happen to them to such a degree that it would go around the world for generations to come to everybody. And so we understand that whatever this thing was, it didn't fully fit them then. There was one who wasn't just apparently abandoned by God, but actually abandoned by God. And it was the one that we read about in Matthew 27 today. It fits. When you read, and I won't do it now, but you read Matthew, I mean, Psalm 22 carefully and you begin to see like, whoa, there is somebody who's actually endured this kind of God forsakenness. Somebody who was scorned and mocked. Somebody at whom like priests would wag their heads. Somebody who would be pierced. Somebody who would likely have his bones dislocated as the cross would drop into its hole. Someone who would be laid down into the dust of death, as the psalm says. And someone who would be delivered from it. Someone who would be rescued out of the dust of death. One who would overcome and conquer showing that he was abandoned by God as he was taking on the sin sacrifice of the world. But then he was forever reconciled to God and all those who believe in him and trust in him being reconciled as well. The the, the suit jacket, if you will, friends, doesn't fit David that well. It better fits Jesus. See, the, the, the options for us as we walk out of here today are either apparent abandonment or actual abandonment. One has actually been abandoned. The Son of God. For sinners who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. 
which means that all those who feel abandoned by God, it's only apparent. He's been abandoned so you don't have to. He has suffered the wrath of Almighty God so that you don't have to. God is not going to let you writhe in pain. He will deliver you. It may not come as fast as you want it to, but help is on the way, and it will either happen now in time or at death and in eternity, but His people do not experience His wrath because it has been fully absorbed by His Son. One who was actually abandoned. And so I say that you've either actually been abandoned or you're apparently abandoned or somebody has actually been abandoned on your behalf. I say this carefully, kindly. Some of you are currently, and this is scary, and I'm not trying to be ultra scary, but it's true. Some of you have been abandoned by God. Because you don't turn to Him. It isn't your heart cry to draw near to Him in the problems of life. Because you don't see Him as your God. You don't have a relationship with Him. Only those who have entered into relationship with God through faith in His Son have the ultimate assurance of deliverance in the end. But some have been forsaken by God. You know, that's what hell is. It is the ultimate abandonment of God. It is ultimate and final separation from God. And yet, here's what I would say is good news. One has been abandoned by God so that you wouldn't have to be. He would take that on Himself so that you could be reconciled. And so, friends, we're either actually abandoned or we're only apparently abandoned because someone else has been abandoned on our behalf. If you are just apparently abandoned, can I remind you of one last thing? Look at the last few words of the verse. Why will all the universe praise the Lord? Because He has done it. You know what that reminds me of? It is finished. Friends, God is not angry at you in your distress, in your sorrow, in your apparent forsakenness. He is near. There is no wrath to be had. Deliverance is on His way. He has done it. And for those of you who are distanced from God, removed from Him, it is so simple. By faith, come to Him and be reconciled. He has paid it on your behalf. Here's how we finish today. I quickly pray we sing. We sing first of Christ's abandonment so that we can then sing joyously of our acceptance in Him. So stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and then the refuge that we find in our God. Let's close with these two songs of praise. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to You needy, dependent, recognizing that at times we just seem so far from You. I pray that You would strengthen the faith of those who are in this low point in this season. Lord, assure them that they are not abandoned. One has already been abandoned on their behalf. And for those who are far from You, truly, they have never turned to You by faith. I pray that they would do that today. 
And for those of us who are not experiencing this kind of lowness in this season, I pray that we would be sympathetic to those who are suffering. Or may we as a congregation do well at pointing one another to Jesus, the one forsaken on our behalf. Help us to do that even now in song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.